Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love dogs and cats and the people who care about them. Every week I talk with authors and experts to expand our understanding and appreciation of these pets who share our lives. To hear earlier episodes of this show and download podcasts of other informative pet talk radio shows that I co-host with top veterinarians and experts, please go to RadioPetLady.com. If you want to stay in the know when it comes to doing what's best for your pets, follow me on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find me at Tracy Hotchner. That's Tracy with an I-E. Have a pet-related question or comment? Post it on my page or tweet me. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. I also produce the philanthropic Dog Film Festival, sponsored by the Petco Foundation, which I take around the country celebrating the love between dogs and their people while benefiting the animal welfare groups that bring them together. More information is at dogfilmfestival.com. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company whose owners want to feed their own pets and yours with ingredients that are good enough for people to eat, using the same care, ingredients, and facilities where they make food for people. Named after their rescued kitties, W.E. for Webster, R.U. for Rudy, and D.A. for Vanessa, Waruva's owner, David Foreman, is passionate about good nutrition. Their new Caloric Harmony Dry Food for Dogs is formulated on the principle of how the body actually metabolizes food and the importance of high-quality protein in the diet. Not all calories are created equal. Our pets' bodies and ours digest Twinkies and chicken breasts quite differently. Look for Waruva wherever fine natural pet foods are sold. I have three fascinating women joining me today. Amy Gilbreth is here. She's the executive director of Michelson's Found Animals that has a free microchip registry for anyone in the country. And they're going to be part of the Dog Film Festival On Demand collection coming soon. Lori Santos will be with us from the Yale Comparative Cognition Laboratory looking at dogs' intelligence. Wonderful article in the New York Times about her. And Dr. Donna Raditic will be here, a supplement specialist, loves nutrition, with her OMG, omega-3s, microbiome probiotics, and glucosamine preventives for a lot of the things that ail our animals. I am with Amy Gilbreth, who is the executive director of the Michelson Found Animals Foundation in Los Angeles, which does some really interesting, innovative work that has me delighted to meet Amy, who I've been seeking to speak to for it feels like a long time. And here we are. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I found out about the Michelson Found Animals Foundation. I thought found animals, that sound odd, found animals, like did you find abandoned animals? I couldn't figure it out, but it really has to do with not losing animals in the first place, right? Microchipping is sort of one of your main missions, is it not? It is indeed. And the name Found Animals was created by our founder, Dr. Gary Michelson. And to him, it has two meanings. Firstly, it is about microchipping and getting pets home when they are lost. And microchipping was the first major program of the foundation. So it's really in our DNA. But it's also related to the song Amazing Grace and the concept of I once was lost and now I'm found and the joy and the support that animals bring to our lives. That's so sweet. 
Well, I, I read something about a rather celebrity-studded um, gala that you had in L.A., and I thought, why don't I not know about this? I, I should have them involved with the Dog Film Festival, which we'll discuss separately off the air. But I was interested to, to find out that Dr. Mickelson is not a, do- a veterinary doctor. He's a human doctor who was a great genius, I guess, an innovator and invented some essential medical piece of equipment that gave him the freedom to then create this nonprofit. And for all I know, many others. What, what is the story behind him? He is a brilliant, visionary, generous human being. Um, his name is Gary Michelson. He's an orthopedic spinal surgeon, now retired, no longer practicing. And he has over 900 patents issued uh-huh. and pending in his name around the world, <laughs> which makes him the most prolific inventor in any medical specialty ever. And many of those patents are related to spinal surgery devices and techniques. And so if you have had sophisticated spinal surgery anywhere in the world, chances are that something that Dr. Michelson invented was used to help you live a longer, healthier, pain-free life. Isn't that something? And, And spine surgery is practiced all around the world. And so many people have back problems and people are always nervous about having back surgery because... Too bad he's retired. I'm sure he was really great at what he did. And he's like, I know, go to Dr. Michelson. It'll come out well. 900 yeah, patents makes him a pretty, um, pretty inventive gentleman. Yeah, he is legendary, literally legendary. Wow. So why do animals matter so much to him that, that he created this foundation? And you've been the head of it for a long time. I mean, you, you're uh, part of the, the, the building bricks of the joint, right? Yes, I have had the incredible honor and privilege to be the executive director for nearly nine years. I wow. was the first employee, and oh, it has cool. it has been my role to build out Dr. Michelson's vision and to work in partnership with him. The reason that he feels so strongly about animals, as one of his areas of philanthropy, he actually invests in many other areas of philanthropy as well. I figured as animals. Much. Animals played an important role in his childhood um, and an important role in his life. And his dog, he talks about his childhood dog being an incredible support of love and connection. And he believes that everyone should have access to that joy. Isn't that lovely? So microchipping, you also do spay neuter, right? And you have a, do you have a, I, I can't remember if you have a spay neuter mobile van. Tell some of the things that you do in LA. LA is such a huge place. I mean, huge county, huge geographic area, and going 10 miles takes hours. So explain how you do what you do. So we have a couple of different sort of buckets of programs. There's a lot that we do locally in Los Angeles, and then there's also things we do nationally. In Los Angeles, we almost function like a small humane society or SPCA would. We have two different adoption centers where we adopt out shelter pets. We also have a social enterprise business around that where we sell retail products and we do doggy daycare and grooming to help us offset the money that we invest in getting our shelter pets healthy and ready for adoption. We support a lot of spay and neuter and work with a lot of spay and neuter nonprofits. So uh, the nonprofits that we support in various ways do over 50,000 surgeries a year, subsidized surgeries in the Los Angeles area. We provide microchips to a lot of the organizations in Los Angeles. We run a kitten nursery in Los Angeles where we pull underage kittens out of the shelter that would otherwise Oh, my goodness. We get them in foster homes and then get them adopted. We did over 1,000 kittens in that program in 2016, and we hope to do 2,000 in 2017. We're involved wow. in policy. Yeah, we're really, we've got our hands on everything in LA to support the goal of having Los Angeles become a city with a 90% live release rate in 2017. And animals that when lost get refound. 
and animals that get a chance at life that otherwise would expire, little tiny underage kittens. I mean, you, you, the shelter doesn't have a place to bottle feed all of them. So you have all these foster families. It's pretty amazing. Microchipping is an interesting topic. I recently wrote a blog about it, um, saying that there were a lot of things people didn't understand about microchips and needed to understand so they didn't have a false sense of security or safety. And I probably, if I didn't know how busy you were, because it was really hard to, to get hold of you, I would have sent you the blog and you would have thought, oh my God, is she against microchipping? Not at all. But I would have loved to have, and I can just ask you now, because you'll know the answers. Your advice, since microchipping was the beginning of your work, how to pick the right company. Do you have one company you work with that you believe in? Because this issue of you adopt a pet and you think that you're told the animal's microchipped, but you, the new owner, whether it's a brand new puppy or kitten or a, something that's of any age from a shelter or a foster group, you don't transfer that information to your own name. So now the animal's walking around with a microchip that's not registered to you. So the information just goes back to maybe the shelter or maybe a previous owner. And you don't even know that a lot of them, you have to pay a yearly fee for them to even keep you in the database. So how do you educate people about that and have people pick the right microchip? So this is the entire reason why we are in the microchip business. No kidding. What we do as a nonprofit is we provide high quality, affordable microchips to shelters and rescue groups around the country, along with universal scanners. And then we offer a free microchip registry for exactly uh -huh. this. So many pet owners don't understand that the microchip is not a GPS. Correct. It's useless unless it's in a registry and connected to your contact information. Yes. And unfortunately, because many of the registries out there charge or because they're not transparent about their policies, that is a barrier to people keeping that information up to date. So we provide, you can go to found.org, a completely free registry. You can register any brand of microchip. No it's free kidding. to put your chip in the database. It's free to update your information. It's free to transfer that pet to a new owner. So the role wow. we want to play in this space is to make sure that there is an option so that every microchip can be registered so that every pet can be returned home. There's also this fabulous tool that tends to be more relevant for pet professionals that we push very hard, which is called the American Animal Hospital Association Microchip Lookup Tool. It's the closest thing we have in the U.S. to one-stop shopping that a pet professional can go to, for example, a veterinarian or a shelter. Yep. When a pet comes in as lost or stray and a microchip is found, they put the microchip into this online tool and it will tell them in which databases is this microchip registered and when was the last time that microchip registration was updated. So then you know which registry to go to to find the owner information for that chip. But if you go to found.org and you get hold of your number, which you can do by stopping into your vet who you hope has a universal scanner, and if they don't, a, a county shelter, I'm imagining, if you, if you just don't have this information. I mean, there are people who... They know their driver's license number, maybe, but they don't know their car registration number, and they certainly don't know their pet's microchip. They could go and get their pet scanned, write down the number, and then go to found.org and put in all the information, and you guys will be like their iCloud forever? Yeah, we, we are a microchip registry. We're free, um, free for life. And yes, you can go to your veterinarian. You can go to the shelter. You can ask them to scan your pet, write down that information, take it home with you. 
you can come to found.org and register for free. And what we recommend to people is that you think of this almost uh, like you would changing the batteries in your smoke detector. Yes, yes. Or as a New Year's resolution where once or twice a year, you check and update that registration. Has your phone number changed? Has your address changed? Would you like to change your emergency contact? One of the things that I do with my own dog, because I travel a fair amount and he travels with me sometimes, is I will go into the found.org registry and I will change my emergency contact when I travel. So if I'm taking him to Arizona with me, I'll change my emergency contact from someone in LA to my parents in Arizona. And then when I come back home to Los Angeles, I'll change it back to somebody in Los Angeles. And because it's always free to update or change your information, you can do it as often as you like. It's a really brilliant idea. And I I didn't quite grasp because there's so much going on on the website and so many services and so much activity and so much good work's being done that this really brilliant, brilliant the way things that are very obvious are brilliant, right? Except for the free part isn't obvious. So that's kind of amazing. I'm hoping that there's a place where it's sort of like a Wikipedia where if someone is going to use your free service, can is there a place where they can also donate a little bit of money or a lot of money to just keep your work going? Is is there the option for that? I mean, free is great, but supposedly there's no free lunch. Shouldn't we be supporting that part of what you do? That is an amazing and generous thought, and that's where Dr. Michelson comes in. He is happy to help subsidize this wow. in order to make this service available. It's part of his philanthropy. Wow. He's pretty cool. I got. I have to meet him and you, for that matter. I definitely have he to is. meet you. What What you guys are doing is is just, you know, it's like, you know, what? There's a problem. I've got the solution, and here it is, and I did it. And now what? You know, he. It's it's amazing that someone can just wrap their head around something. Now we need to get the word out more because you obviously have a great PR firm. It's how I first found you and you do a great deal on your own, but being a national organization, I'd like to be part of getting that word out. Maybe the dog film festival, you know, give a a PSA or something because if, you know, found.org works nationally, it's really vital. Having been a, a volunteer EMT in East Hampton in the years that I lived out in the Hamptons where this show originates from, there were dogs in car accidents. And if the person was injured, and had to go to the hospital and was conscious, but maybe disoriented or or panicked or shocky or something. They didn't really know how to tell you what to do with the dog. So no, someone has doesn't have to die to wind up need to go quickly to a doctor or hospitalization and no one knows what to do with the pet. And that emergency contact does change over life. You get divorced, your sister moves away, the people whose names you had in there do change just like when you travel. It's really critically important because if someone's taken to the doctor or the hospital or to a nursing home or what have you, and nobody knows who the emergency contact is, the dog goes to a shelter. So people listening need to understand that if they don't know who to contact, the dog goes to the shelter. Not really what you had in mind for your you know, emergency care for your dog, right? Exactly. Well, and a lot of people don't realize that a lost pet can happen to anyone. A natural disaster um, Mm -hmm. can cause your pet to get out of a yard, a storm, a gardener can leave a gate open, a guest can leave your door open. So we ask everyone to plan ahead for your pet to get home before you're in the situation. And so what we recommend, of course, you love microchips. They're the only effective form of permanent identification. But your first line of defense is a collar tag with contact information. And we recommend at least two phone numbers on that collar tag of two different people. So potentially husband and wife, 
you know, potentially trusted neighbor or friend so that if someone finds your dog either after a car accident or in your neighborhood, they have multiple people to call right away. They don't have to take the pet to a shelter or a vet to start the reunification process to get that chip scanned. Of course, that's a backup plan. But if your contact information is right there on the collar tag, you can have anyone, even without a scanner, start to get your pet back to you immediately. Definitely. And it's part of that same educational piece of this. As as I also said, you know, it's invisible. People aren't going on with a scanner in their back pocket and it can be five o'clock and the vet's offices are closed and the shelter's closed too. So a collar tag with with telephone numbers on it is essential. And again, you have to figure out what's the likelihood that you, if it's just a lost pet and not you being disabled in some way, that you're going to definitely have your cell phone number because don't put your house number if you're not home very often. If you're at work or traveling around, all they're going to get is an answering machine. And then you wind up with a good Samaritan. I've been there. I was there so many times actually in the Hamptons and a couple of times in LA where you have three dogs at home. You now have a stray dog in your car. What are you supposed to do with them? You can't bring them home. Your dogs are not going to welcome them. So you've got to have somebody that, who you can actually reach on a number so they can you can rendezvous and you can be, you know, the great savior of the day. Is there a brand of microchip? I know you're you're not a commercial enterprise, but is there a brand that you recommend over others if someone has a choice or is it really more relevant where it's registered? The most important thing is that regardless of where your chip came from, you register it and you keep your contact information up to date. Often as a consumer, you don't have a lot of choice about microchip brand. That's true. So the shelter or the veterinarian where your pet is going to get chips, they use whatever brand they use. Good so point. they don't carry multiple brands for you to choose. Right. <laughs> I wouldn't worry. I wouldn't worry about that. Okay. What I would focus on is make sure that chip gets registered in your name with your contact information and make sure you keep your contact information up to date. Great advice. And also, what about the idea that when you go in for your yearly wellness exam or with an older pet, we hope you're going in every six months, that you have the vet scan. I've never had a vet who said, oh, let me double check check on your chip because they do move around and they aren't always going to stay between the shoulder blades. And either they can't find it at all. I've heard of that happening, the body reabsorbing it, or I don't know what happens to it, or it's traveled to somewhere and then they probably should reinsert another one in the shoulder blades because someone else isn't going to check someone's, you know, toes and tail, so to speak, to look for it. Do you think that that recheck is an important thing to make sure it stayed more or less where it was placed? I do think checking at your annual vet visit is a fantastic idea. There are some vets that do that. It is rare for a microchip to migrate significantly. Okay. Pet professionals are aware that that can happen. And so when they are scanning an animal, they do scan everywhere. Okay. We actually don't recommend duplicate chipping oh. because if you duplicate chip, you have no control over which chip the scanner is going to pick up. And so now you have to be sure that you keep both of those chips registered and up to date with full contact information. Yeah, good point. Okay, so that's a really well-made point. Well, I don't know what we can do to help Found Animals Foundation or the Michelson Found Animals Foundation other than to thank you for being there and be amazed and awed by all that you're doing in a really big town and you have really big hopes and dreams and, and solutions to a lot of problems. I just have to say it's amazing that you're there. And if all I do is tell people found.org to go there today and register and you don't have to give any money because Dr. Michelson took care of that. It's just a beautiful thing. So Amy Gilbreth, I think what you've done is incredible over nine years. And 
not many of us stay at something for nine years. I've been at this show for 10, but you know, it's pretty rare. So I say good for we women who stick to what we started out doing and just make it better all the time. I, I think it's great. I look forward to meeting you when I'm in LA with the Dog Film Festival and we'll figure out a way to to make sure that that word about what you're doing, it becomes part of the of the festival. I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that. Thanks so much for all your great work. And please thank the good doctor for all of his good work. He, he really does seem like a, a seventh wonder of the world. He is incredible. Thank you so much for having us and for helping spread the word so that people can get the most out of their microchips. It's a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Halo Holistic Natural Dog and Cat Foods, which are made only with whole meats, never any rendered meat meals like chicken meal or byproduct meal. Dogs love meat and cats are obligate carnivores, so optimum nutrition starts with meat that their bodies can best utilize. With responsibly sourced ingredients slow-cooked in small batches, independent tests have shown Halo foods are highly digestible so your pet's bodies can absorb the nutrients. When you feed your pet Halo food, at the same time you'll be nourishing less fortunate shelter pets because for every purchase you make, Halo gives a bowl of food to shelters. I am back with Lori Santos, who's a professor of psychology and the head of the Yale Comparative Cognition Laboratory, which I didn't even know existed until this New York Times article came out about how smart is your animal. So it's great to know that right here on the East Coast, we too can find out how smart our dogs are, but I don't think that's really the point of the Yale Cognition Laboratory. Lori, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, the article in the New York Times, as can happen in popular culture, did make it seem as though this obviously very scholarly and interesting and serious work that you're doing really boiled down to someone knowing how smart their Havanese was, which I've known a few <laughs> Havanese, and honestly, they are not off the chart in the IQ department. But what is this about people wanting to know how smart? I mean, I want to talk about the serious work you're doing, but why do people care about how smart their dogs are or do they care? Or is it only like a tiny percentage that even get into that area? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think people care about all kinds of things about their dog, right? You want to know how smart your dog is. You want right. to know how much your dog loves you, right? Like we really track in wanting to better understand our pet's mind. And I think we, we do that for everyone. You know, we want to know what our friends think and what our partners think, but you know, for dogs, it's trickier because they can't tell us, right? Or they can't tell us, like, using language in the same right. way a human might. And so I think our center provides one way to get some insight into what, what dogs are thinking, how they're strategizing, how they make decisions. And it's one of the reasons the dog's companions really love coming to the center. Because they can't wait to find out. I mean, it's like the, the article in the Times said it's like the baby Einstein CDs of people hoping that they could, you know, have their dogs start doing the crossword puzzle and get smarter. You know, like they think they too can get smarter by doing the crossword puzzle, which exactly, apparently now has yeah. been disproven, which is, my God, all that wasted pencil eraser, right? So <laughs> when you started doing this, I, I guess we're all pretty um, – familiar with Alexandra Horowitz's canine cognition lab at Barnard because she's written a bunch of really wonderful books on topics of how dogs are experiencing the world, basically. But when you started there, first of all, how long ago did you start the, the lab? Did you start it? Did someone else start it and you've taken it over? Has it been there a long time and just been doing its work quietly by itself? Yeah, no, we, we just started a couple years ago. So in December of 2013 was when we had a ribbon cutting ceremony. Um, so just, just a little under three years. Um, and so, so we're kind of newbies to the canine cognition center. I started, I, I've what kind of long been interested in kind of the study of animal cognition. So how animals think about the world. 
And most of my work to date had been work with primates. I study monkeys at a field site trying to kind of make sense of their decisions and so on. But I think there's been this real zeitgeist in canine cognition work where scholars are realizing that dogs can tell us a lot about what makes humans special. Um, and in addition to kind of telling us about humans, we're also just interested in dogs in their own right. You know, there's so many people want to know what their dogs are thinking and so on. Um, and so it's kind of become this sort of hot new field. And so we kind of started up um, a couple years ago and got the center up and running uh, to start answering some of these questions too. And, and, and there, we have Brian Hare um, at the Duke Cognition Lab with his wife, who was very much a primate person, as you were. I mean, she's the Bonobo lady, right? And and he did a lot, bunch mm -hmm. of work with her, I think, with the Bonobos. And she's been on the show talking about her book about the Bonobo handshake. So when you look at primates versus dogs as a species to interact with and try to figure out not just on our scale of what we consider smart, but smart for their own needs, right? Because intelligence has to be mm -hmm. considered as the species. What do they need to be smart about to do well in their world? What are some similarities, dissimilarities? Do you have any primate work going on at Yale or was that in your past or do you just bring that, that sort of experience to the table with you? Yeah, no, we're still about half of the work that um, is going on in my lab is primate-based, all not based at Yale, but we do work in the field with primates um, who kind of live in Puerto Rico. Um, but I think in terms of differences, what really what we're seeing is that there's one spot that dogs are surprisingly better than non-human primates, and that comes in this domain of being motivated to learn from and help out human ex humans in general. Yes. Um, it seems like other primates just seem to have this deficit where they don't really pay that much attention to the kinds of things people are telling them. They kind of prioritize figuring it out on their own, whereas dogs are really interested in what we tell them. They kind of use us as social tools in this way that primates don't. And you can see some real striking differences. Um, one of the most famous ones is that chimpanzees are really bad at using a super simple human social cue, which is just pointing. Right. Um, so you can set chimpanzees up where we're playing a food finding game. Um, the chimpanzee doesn't know where food is, um, but I, as the human experimenter, happen to know when I look and point at one location. And what you find is that even with lots of training, chimp chimpanzees are just terrible at that. With lots and lots of training, they can't figure out how to use this cue that we're kind of nicely using to help them. In contrast, you do this study, you know, in one trial with dogs, and all of a sudden, they kind of pick up on it. They can use our social cues to figure stuff out in the world. And this, this is a big difference. It suggests our closest living relatives is missing some of the critical social information that domestication seems to have built dogs to pick up on. Interesting. And so it's evolved over time as, as a way in which they can benefit from our uh, help to them. So with a human toddler or pre-toddler infant, I guess one of the things that I recall is a moment of development in the human where when a toy or a bottle goes out of view, baby drops bottle, baby drops toy, baby doesn't really know where to look for it. And then there's a moment in time where they now can figure out where it went and perhaps follow it or try to get it. Do babies mm -hmm. follow a, a, an adult or another baby's clue pointing or looking at or throwing something at the thing? Yep. And so very young human babies and especially human toddlers are really, really good at tracking information about where people are pointing, where I want ah. to go. In fact, this seems to be kind of one of the signatures of our species is that 
we're kind of just motivated to share information with others. We're motivated, we're motivated to pick up on other people's information. So if somebody's telling me something, I usually trust them, right? Um, yes. But we're also motivated to share information too. And this is one of the striking things that humans do that other primates don't, which is that even from a very young age, even right at the end of the first year of life, kids themselves will start sharing information. So if you've ever had like a one-year-old around you, you know they're constantly kind of looking and pointing at stuff they want you to look at too. You know, like, right. oh, look at this with me. And it's kind of like they don't want that object. They just kind of want to share in the fact that you're just kind of taking it all in together, kind of sharing the same experiences. And this is the kind of thing that, that non-human primates don't do at all, but the kind of thing that we see the sort of seeds of in dogs where they really do kind of want to engage in these like fetch games and similar kinds of games with us. They, they want to pay attention to what we're paying attention to and what we know. Um, and this is probably one of the reasons they're such fantastic companions for us over domestication, right? Is like they kind of have this motivation to be part of our world, to think about what we're thinking about. Um, and that, you know, makes them fun to be around, just like another human. And uh, yes, yeah, so better than another human because they're so tuned in. And I guess with individual dogs, we think this one's the most amazing because she can tell when I'm going to go for a walk or she knows when I'm feeling stressed and she comes over and half the time I don't know if Maisie's being an emotional support dog for me or for her but mm -hmm. if I I have found that if I'm too many hours too long of a stretch at the computer just completely you know not moving my hands or my neck you know the, the way you can get when you're just trying to get through stuff and she'll nudge my mouse hand and I mm -hmm. look at her and I go what are you my emotional support dog thank you you're right I should get <laughs> up for a minute now I don't know yeah. that that's why she's doing it and dogs are trained to do these things for people that have PTSD or pre-seizure or, or pre-migraine or pre-things that they pick up on. And then they indicate to the person, hey, you should be doing less of this or more of that or be on alert for something. You know, your blood sugar is low. But that picking up of information and then sharing it is something that, yeah, dogs seem to have evolved to want to do that. And I guess what you're saying in, in having the Yale Canine Cognition Lab which also has primates in it, um, is that it teaches us things about people that maybe we wouldn't understand as that. In other words, maybe we wouldn't see that a baby pointing and saying goo goo gaga is actually sharing something with us, right? I mean, I'm not sure that's how we'd perceive it unless the way you just described it pointed out something very basic and important about how we bond and learn and share advice and information between ourselves too. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I think what what we have learned in comparative cognition is there are all these things that we take for granted in the human yes. species that, that seem to be like incredibly cognitively complex, that seem to be the kind of things that in some cases set us apart from other animals, but we wouldn't notice those unless we go out and sort of turn to other animals to check, hey, what do they do and so on. And I think these, um, these pointing studies are kind of real change for canine cognition and showed its importance, partly because at the time researchers knew, you know, hey, chimpanzees can't follow pointing. They're kind of not motivated to pick up on this information. Folks are claiming that this was unique to humans. And it was, in fact, Brian Hare and his colleagues who said, well, hang on, I bet my dog could do that. And I was like, well, right. no, probably your dog can't, and you know, chimpanzees can't do it. But lo and behold, when you look carefully, you find there is another species that shares this capacity with us. Um, it might just be the very species that evolved to be around us, right? So it kind of makes sense. Right. That they have capacities. And and I guess that part of that helps us understand how we are part of 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 change, 
I mean, the original dog didn't do that. Wolves don't do it. I mean, to the extent that right. dogs, you know, evolve from wolves. It's pretty cool. What do you have on your radar as your goals in the next six months, in the next six years? Do you see yourself going into new areas? How do you, with such a, a new and fresh laboratory and the and probably the ability to pick and choose what you're going to focus on and how you're going to do it seriously like intellectually cutting edge and how it affects <laughs> you know what we think about dogs yeah. you you have a freedom that that existing places probably don't have so so what what it and obviously you're someone that that wants to make these cross species sort of comparisons what do you what do you have on your wish list yeah, so one of the main things that we've been focused on is this question of kind of the some of the limitations of dogs' ability to track what we're thinking and dogs' ability to kind of use us as social tools. One of the double-edged swords of being a human is that we're good at learning from other humans, but we also fall prey to other people's bad information, their bad advice, and so on. You know, so it's great that I'm a human and I can kind of pick up on what my culture is teaching me. You know, but sometimes it would be better to kind of ignore the information I'm getting, you know, figure it out on myself, or maybe consider ways I could innovate things and so on. And so we're kind of interested in where dogs fall on this double-edged sword. It's clear that they listen to us. It's clear that they pick up on our information. But do they fall prey to the same kinds of biases that we show? We kind of listen too much sometimes. Um, and some of the newest work that's coming out of our lab suggests that dogs might be this really wonderful sweet spot where they're able to use social information from us, but they don't necessarily fall prey to as many of the same errors that we do. In other words, they're not kind of using our social information indiscriminately. So they're not going to be lemmings who go over the cliff just because we say, come on, boy, let's go. And if we jump off exactly. the cliff, and so the way, they're the going to stop short. That, you know, we haven't had, uh, yeah, we haven't had dogs jumping off cliffs. We thought that might not be, you know, the best, best way to test it. But um, what the way we do test it is to give dogs, um, introduce dogs to kind of a new puzzle box, like a box that could contain food, but one that's tricky for dogs to figure out how to open. And what we can do is vary the kind of information that people give the dogs about how to solve this box. Um, in one study, we've given dogs kind of, two kinds of information, some that's sort of relevant for opening the box. The box has this kind of lid at the top and like you actually need to lift that up to open it and get the food. But we also give dogs some irrelevant information. We have the, the person who's solving the box do this totally extraneous thing with a lever on the side <laughs> that doesn't actually matter for opening the box. And interestingly, when you do this with chimpanzees, as you might predict, chimpanzees ignore the irrelevant thing. You know, they just kind of solve it on their own human children in contrast, and even human adults in some situations, kind of slavishly copy what they saw the person do. So even if beforehand they would have said, you know, that lever can't possibly do anything, when they see someone intentionally act on it, they kind of follow exactly what they saw. And so we were really interested in whether or not dogs would do this. And at the time we hypothesized, you know, given how much they follow us, maybe they're going to fall for it too. In fact, we so thought dogs were going to do that, that we also tested one of dog's ancestors or a kind of a distant relative of dogs, not wolves in this case, but dingoes, Australian dingoes, right. not as domesticated as dogs. Cause we thought, well, they won't do it, but what about dogs? But what we found out was that dogs are really sharp on this test. They successfully ignored this dumb thing that humans were doing and only used the information that was relevant. And the cool thing with that is it suggests that kind of dogs, like dogs may even have a better filter for bad information than even humans do. 
um, which was kind of surprising when we first got this result. But fits, maybe over domestication, they actually had time to figure out what are the good, what's the good information I can get from humans and what is the kind of stuff that maybe I should just ignore. Well, did you think that possibly the odor of the food that they were using one of their other senses to, to make that decision, it still would prove your point that they were thinking independently, they weren't slavishly following, but could it be that the odor of the food was more prominent from that top hatch and was yeah, it all present these are the all side? the tricky things. Yep, these are all the tricky things you have to figure out how to control for when you do right. um, these kinds of studies. And so, you know, we, we do all these kind of careful controls to make sure, well, let's make sure they're not kind of smelling the ants and so on. I mean, really, once you have those controls in place, what you find is that the dogs are just like figuring out how to do it on their own. Like they'll use information from us when they need it to so say they don't know where food is hidden. Like they have to rely on our pointing. They'll follow it really well and kind of understand our cues. But as soon as they can figure it out on their own, they kind of just ignore us, right? I guess in, in my own personal life with dogs, I've all, all of whom have always run off leash for long periods of the day with me, at least once or twice a day. And in, in the Northwest woods where I lived in the Hamptons, there were loads of, they were old forest, old growth forest, white pine forest, and loads of, of standing dead trees and down dead trees in which various rodents took up residence. And I didn't have Jack, I mean, at one point I had a half Jack Russell, half Corgi that I'd gotten from my sister, but I mostly had Weimaraners and at one point a mm -hmm. Golden Retriever and a Cocker Spaniel. So not really dogs that were rodent hunters, not terriers, but they took what they could get. So there were that's what interested them was these fallen logs and they would get bleeding gums practically and torn toenails trying to get into a log that the, the chimpanzee or, or mouse or little vole or something had hidden in. So sometimes I would help them. If I could lift it, I would upend the, the log and out would fly the thing. And if I was pointing at the time, they weren't relying on my finger. At that point, their adrenaline was so high. They were mm -hmm. going on their own eyes as best they could, not that they were particularly sighthounds. And sometimes they'd get the thing and sometimes they wouldn't. And if it was smart, it would go up a tree and that'd be the end of that. But I one day tried not to be mean, but just curious. I went to a log recently here in Vermont and I said, get it, girls, get it, get it, get it. And I pointed and I touched with my toe to a log and they went in great enthusiasm. And within seconds, they're like, not really. There's nothing in there. Yeah. And they didn't yep. keep at it. Even if I went, come on, come on, get it, get it. Which, you know, generally gets them all fired up and it's going to be a fun game. So that really proves exactly what you're talking about. They're willing to go along, but they right away figure out, no, that's not, that's not really computing for me. Not you're mm -hmm. trying to trick me or you're stupid, but I, I got another, I got another, I got a workaround for that. I, I got something yeah, better, exactly. a better way to figure this out. Um, Laurie, do you Surprisingly, that means they're kind of even more innovative than humans yes. are sometimes. Yes, because cool. we just, you know, get an ax and go, okay, if you say so, boss. And, you know, we just start mm -hmm. chopping up the log to see what was there. Do you, are you looking for people on the East Coast to present themselves to your lab and, and be available? Or are you already got a waiting list? What, what's the situation with just a minute left? Do you, do you want no. Dog Talk listeners to, to get over to New Haven and hang out with you? Oh, yes, definitely. You can sign your dog up at doglab.yale.edu. Um, okay. You can just fill out a quick survey about your dog, um, and then we will kind of contact you. We do have a bit of a wait list for new dogs who are coming in, but we're always looking to recruit more dogs. Um, we need lots of dogs from different breeds and different ages and from different backgrounds. Great. So definitely that would be really fun. Any of you who are easy travelers or uh, or 
you know, it's it's nearby. It obviously would be a very this is be a new age kind of a vacation. Go to Yale and have your dog studied. It'll be fun. Lori, I think the work you're doing is great. I can't wait to hear more results of more studies. So please stay in touch. And as soon as you have anything at all to report, come back and tell us because it's it's wonderful work and, and so interesting in so many ways for all of us. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Take care. This show is made possible in part by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, who has his own cats-only clinic in Colorado. He's devoted his life to inventing innovative litters for the health of all members of the family, and now he has broken new ground by creating a new dry and canned food for kitties called Clean Protein. Clean Protein was inspired by the protein levels found in a cat's natural prey, and 90% of the protein in the Clean Protein kibble and cans is animal-based, not the plant-based ingredients in traditional dry cat food like grains, potato, vegetables, and fruits that are high in oxalate and lead to rapid metabolization, which actually increases your cat's hunger. The primary ingredients in Dr. Elsie's Clean Protein are the highest biological value proteins available. And the result is that your cat's appetite is satisfied longer without compromising her health. If you want to feed dry food to your cat, even as part of her diet, make the healthier choice. The proof is in the protein. Dr. Donna, it is wonderful to be reunited with you. I think we did a couple of shows in the past, so anyone to whom your name sounds familiar should know that you and I met in Tennessee, where you were um, on the, is it called the staff of the university? I guess that's not the right word. But you faculty, have yeah, faculty. faculty. There you go, the faculty. And, and I immediately found a kindred spirit in you because nutrition is a big part of your whole philosophy, I guess, about wellness and even how to treat illness. And so it was wonderful to read this article in the Bark magazine where natural health supplements and your dog, I, I guess really I would say and ourselves, that you were the, the person who was uh, giving that advice. Is it something that you find more and more people interested in? Yes, definitely. Um, there's a lot of studies and reports out there indicating that probably more than half of Americans today are using some type of nutritional supplement. And obviously we know, you know, if you're a pet parent, and you have a little furry child, and you're concerned and thinking about supplements for your own health, you certainly are going to want information about using supplements for your furry children. And, and in fact, I think, even in my own case, and I spent so many years in California that supplements are us, is sort of the, uh, the, the ideology behind California wellness. I wound up giving things like fish oil and other omega-3s to my dogs first before I realized that it would be sort of like, you know, the oxygen mask in the in the airplane, put it on yourself first and then help those dependent on you. It's like, why would I take care of my dog's cells and brain and heart and let mine atrophy as they will? Uh, have you always been a supplement taker yourself personally and for your human family? No, I think it, it really fell in line when um, I actually started doing my nutrition residency. And at that point in time, I was already doing um, some alternative therapies, you know, traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture, um, Chinese herbs and things. So it kind of formed and came together at that time. And then once, you know, becoming a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Nutrition, I realized there's a real need for us to get information about how to use 
one, certainly diets. We all know good nutrition is the foundation of health, but then also how to wisely use supplements that may actually impact their health in certain disease states or maintain or prevent disease. Since you've always been an integrative veterinarian, uh, thinking holistically, thinking outside the box, thinking further east than west, do you find that being part of a, a very august and small group of subspecialists in animal nutrition, that you're the kind of the odd woman out, like your ideology is quite different from the others since so many veterinary nutritionists seem to be quite conservative or walk the, the middle of the yellow line and work with pet food companies and maybe not think outside the bag or the box? Or are there others like you who are, who are kind of, I would say, a maverick? <laughs> um, I think there are more, more and more that are like me. I, I think we're all having to embrace what our clients want. And certainly they want to know more about nutrition, but they're also asking more questions about supplements. And I think as, you know, board of nutritionists, we are feeling more obligated and becoming more involved in understanding, you know, the literature and and the research and what's out there about supplements. So I, I don't feel so alone anymore, Tracy. That's good because we need more voices like you. In in fact, you know, the, the party line about supplementation from those at the at the sort of the top of the ladder looking down and saying this is what's in commercial pet food and it's complete and balanced and you don't need anything else that somehow supplements were looked upon even when I moved east again after years of living in California and I'd still take a pretty good sized handful of supplements morning and night people say oh you're just creating expensive pee and I'm sure that that's part of the kind of more, I will call it old-fashioned or traditional thinking about supplementation, but so much more is known and has been studied that it's a shame that that if pet owners are curious and motivated to consider supplementation before their animal gets sick as a kind of a wellness preventative kind of thing, it's really great to have a woman in your position who can say these are the one, two, three things that are really essential for cell health. And then, you know, you can refer to all the organs, but all the organs are made up of cells. So I'm, I'm going to reference the article in the, in the bark that goes along with the podcast of the show. But why don't you give your kind of top hit list of the supplements that you think are really good to incorporate in any diet that you're feeding? Well, what we are mostly talking about is my, what I call my OMG approach. Yes, <laughs> OMG I love that. I love approach that. Mm-hmm. To, to supplements. It's probably because these are some of the types of supplement where O stands for our omega-3 fatty acids or yep. the fish oils. And then our M stands for the microbiome. And microbiome stands for the the intense interest in research looking at probiotics, the actual effects of probiotics on on our guts and our health. And then G stands for glucosamines and chondritins. These are some of the building blocks um, supplements that are for joints and joint health. And that's because, of course, we see so much osteoarthritis in our dogs and our cats. And we're very concerned about that. So I came up with this little acronym, you know, the OMG for all of us to remember that these are things that we could be talking to our veterinarians about and consider supplementing our dogs and cats with 
and hopefully not only during disease days, but maybe even in a preventative way. Yes. Um, and I think that we tried to bring that out in this article because, you know, I, I used to tell the students when I was on faculty, we all want to look in that crystal ball. You want to look in the crystal yes. ball when you have a young dog or a new puppy or a new kitten. Yep. And, yep. and you really want to see where can they be going? What disease states might be addressed by nutrition and supplements? And now, you know, too, you've been doing this a long time. Boy, we can name a breed, a dog, and you easily can list three to five, you know, diseases that that patient may have. So what about considering using maybe one of my OMGs as a preventative, you know, starting them on earlier? And we've all been through uh, problems with our patients where once they have chronic disease states, if you compare using omega-3 fatty acids or maybe glucosamine chondroitins or probiotics versus some of the drugs that we're using for osteoarthritis, um, uh, food allergies, or canine atopic disease, some of the inflammatory bowel disease drugs, when you compare those to drugs, thinking about maybe using these simple supplements that can be easily used and safely used might be something we want to talk to our veterinarians about. Well, it's certainly important to recognize that if you don't want your joints to wind up in an arthritic state, that maybe keeping all forms of inflammation down wherever you can on a cellular level in your body and your pet's body might prevent it completely or delay it or lessen the severity. And I guess it's it's sort of frustrating. It's got to be somewhat frustrating to you, although having met you in person and talked to you many times, I know you're an, an infinitely patient woman, unlike me, infinitely impatient, is I feel like uh, I need that rubber mallet and like bang it through people's head. If you keep inflammation down, you can avoid these problems, skin flare-ups, joint problems. We aren't going to say that these things prevent cancer, but we can say that cancer is an inflammatory reaction. It's an inflammatory uh, state in the body. And since 50% of all dogs are going to get it, and as you said, some breeds, even a higher percentage, starting at age two, guys, guys, two, age two, um, how can we not want to be doing something that's like dousing the flames? It's it's frustrating because people are having trouble embracing it because modern Western human medicine does not recognize these thought this thought process. They don't. They want to wait until you're in big pharma and a pharmaceutical is going to deal with a symptom. It's not going to do something preventively to keep it from happening. And I, I'm, you know, you're, you have to be politically correct and, um, you know, diplomatic. So I don't know how you probably have a much less intense way of saying that, but I will say that supplementation may keep your dog away from various medications, not away from the vet's office, but not for those reasons that wind up requiring a bunch of pills and their side effects. No, I I certainly agree with you. I think that when you really take a big step back and you realize that inflammation, all the disease processes, like you just said, if we look at skin disease, if we look at joint disease, if we look at kidney disease, if we look at cancers, there's a common, what we call pathophysiological mechanism. And we're trying to always tease that out, but there is a very common denominator and that is inflammation. 
and the inflammatory response in the body, the chemistry, the chemistry of inflammation in our bodies and our dog bodies and our cat bodies comes from fatty acids. And we know that the omega-3 fatty acids have a more balanced, a more softer or subtle inflammatory response where the omega-6s, very common in animal fats, high levels in animal fats have a really rapid and uh, large burst of inflammation. So what you're trying to achieve by using omega-3 fatty acids is you're trying to temper, moderate, or keep a more appropriate inflammatory state in the body. And I don't think anybody can disagree with that logic. I think what makes it tough in our patients is because the animal fats are so palatable and they're used as palatability enhancers in many of our pet diets, that a lot of our patients are kind of already heavy in omega-6 intake and in a pro-inflammatory state. Put in a little bit of dog breed genetics or some other infectious agent or something else and boosh, we get a big flare in that heavy omega-6 intake. So yes, the logic of countering that by using your omega-3 fatty acids for kidney disease, for skin disease, for cancers, all that is out there in the literature and is certainly something that we can use proactively instead of reactively. I think it's just so important that this message gets across and your article does it so well. I wouldn't say that it's O or M or G. It's OMG. You need to have all three of these things in your dog's diet every day. One of one of your colleagues at University of Tennessee had some great statistics. I interviewed him for this show a number of years ago on how much that, that something like three times the amount of omega-3 supplementation is what is actually needed to flood every cell in your body and your dog's body around the clock. You don't give it once a week. And in my case, I take mine and give mine to my girls twice a day because those cells are hungry for it and they will uptake it, especially if it's in a really high quality delivery form where it's bioavailable. They're all lacking it, all these cells. So if you flood them with it and they can uptake it, if I'm saying this correctly, it's a little bit lay terminology, all those cells are in a happy place. They're not in a hot, inflamed ready to be in trouble place. Is that something that you say to clients, please, when you give these, give them and give them regularly? It's it's sort of, it's hard for people to recognize when they have a young or a healthy dog that they need to spend 30 bucks a jar, let's say for a high quality omega-3 and give it all the time because it's invisible health that they're giving their dog, wouldn't you say? Or their kitty. I, no, I do agree with you because it is actually the cell membrane, the, the cell membranes where these fatty acids are deposited. So again, a, a dog or a cat eating a heavy animal fat, heavy omega-6 diet every day, every day yes. is loading that cell membrane up with those omega-6s. So the only thing I can say to you to counter that is every day, giving them a balance, giving them an omega-3 supplement on a daily basis so that cell membrane has some sixes and some threes, which is what we want, which is appropriate. So yes, you know, talking to your veterinarian and there are established dosages for using these very, very safely. Once you assess the diet, you know, the levels of omega-6s in that diet, you should be appropriately giving omega-3s to create a balance in that cell membrane. And then again, you'll receive a balanced 
response, inflammatory response, instead of all the, I call them my itises. You know, when I was first a veterinarian, people would always ask me, what disease is this? Well, it's arthritis, dermatitis, gastritis, cystitis. What does itis mean? You know, inflammation. Wow. So this is a real effective way of helping our patients proactively instead of waiting until that inflammatory disease hits and really gets deep-seated. And then we have to step into all the drugs and all the other therapies. Certainly the omega-3s will help even those patients, Tracy, but, you know, they are more effective if they're on board proactively, just like you're saying. Good to have. It's a sprinkler system, really, that's always dripping on a potential fire. You aren't waiting to call the fire department and hope they could get a good hose hookup and get there on time when you have the flames <laughs> shooting out the windows, right? It's more like a yeah. nice drip, keep the place nice and calm and cool. And the glucosamine and chondroitin, Dr. Donna, is something I have, I can't tell you how many older guys I play tennis with being an older gal myself and insisting upon playing an hour and a half of singles. And these guys are, ooh, ah, my lower back, my knees, my feet. And I say, please, take some omega-3 and some glucosamine chondroitin MSM just for a month. But do it twice a day, every day. One of them actually did it and came back like he, you know, found Lourdes or something. The other ones, yeah, I did it once, but then I don't know where the pills are. And the other ones won't even go out and buy it. So they're taking a leave and Advil and, you know, and then not being able to play and still being in pain. And it's sort of amazing to me that something that, that the minute you really, uh, I don't know, cleave to the idea, gives you a result and pets, it, it's just so logical. So you're saying glucosamine and chondroitin as well as the omega-3, yes? Yes, yes. You know, the glucosamine chondroitins are the building blocks for cartilage and joint fluid. And what happens is in a normal joint, there's actually a continuous building of cartilage and joint fluid and then a breakdown of it. Yes. And it's a normal build up, breakdown, build up, breakdown. As we get older and we start to have more wear and tear in our joints and dogs and cats are the same, we have more breakdown of joint fluid and cartilage matrix. So some studies are indicating, and again, you know, we don't have all the answers in the research, but clinical experience and watching these cases and watching the data accumulate are suggesting that if we take in our glucosamine chondritins for us and our dogs and cats, that that breakdown may be slowed up and you're actually feeding the building blocks to maintain healthier joints longer and, and help our patients to stay and maintain their mobility longer. I love it. This is such great advice. We've run out of time, Dr. Donna Radetic, but this article you wrote in the Bark, OMG, and your acronym is just so great. We have to keep keep sending the message to everybody. Thank you so much for your great work over all these years. Keep it up, and we'll check in with you soon. Um, we'll come back and discuss probiotics on a separate occasion because that's the, that's the little understood one and, and equally as important. Thank you so much for all your good work. Oh, thank you so much for this opportunity, Tracy. It's always great to talk to you. You have a wonderful day. And you. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening. Kiss your kitties. Hug your pooches. We will talk again next week.